Welcome back to Finnegan and Friends, the show that to some extent is about Ireland. In James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, the main character, if we can call him a character, is HCE, which at one point stands for Here Comes Everybody. The book of this Dublin publican gives us some access to all kinds of voices and thoughts through language that always has more than one meaning. James Joyce figured out that capacity of language, not through some sort of mathematical sense of infinity, but in an intensely local way. Here's Joseph Nugent. He began to understand over the course of his writing career the infinite possibilities that language gave us. He began by writing about Dublin, and it can be said that he continued to write about Dublin through the short stories of Dubliners, through the semi-autobiographical portrait of the artist as young men, through the great complexity of Ulysses, and very especially once he moved on to Finnegan's Wake, it's all, all, all about Dublin. It was the place he said when asked if he would ever return, that he replied, did I ever leave it? Um, uh, but, but you could also say that he wrote about increasingly was simply about language. The more he delved into language and the possibility of language, the more excited he became uh, by that. So whatever Finnegan's Wake is about, and I have no idea what it's about, except to say this, that I think it's about Joyce's delight in what could be done with language. I'm wondering if there's a connection between this adventurous curiosity about language and Dublin. Is there something about Dublin and language curiosity? It's certainly a very talkative city. Anthony Burgess, who of course, who's a great Joyce scholar, said once that the problem with Dublin and the reason why so many of its great writers had to flee was because you could easily talk out a whole book in the pub of a night time. Speaking and the requirement to speak and the ability to speak with a particular colour and inflection and that is the kind of thing that Dubliners gauge and value each other by. So the man at the end of the pub who says something profound might be dismissed or discarded, but the man who says something perhaps simple but does it with a new twist of phrase, new turn of phrase, a new terminology that catches people's ears, that's the person that we admire. So there is certainly something in the way that Dubliners speak. There might be more deep reasons for it, and I don't know whether this is particular to Dublin than to Ireland. It's sometimes thought that the clash between the two different languages, indeed the two different modes of thought that they represent, and by that I mean the rather hard Protestant, I'm going to say, constabular language that is English, that came to the Irish through the courts and through a proper education system, that against the much more, I'm not going to, I don't know how to put this, but the much more feelingy sort of language that is the Irish language, that somewhere or other in the clash of those two modes of thought, that something emerged in Ireland around perhaps the end of the 19th and in the early part of the 20th century that expressed itself in this ridiculous, this preposterous flourishing of English language. So many Irish writers at the time knew that this was a language, and Joyce knew it very particularly, English, that wasn't theirs, that they didn't own, but felt that perhaps that presented them with a great challenge to actually not just overcome whatever inhibitions they might have had about using that Queen's English, but wanted to actually better the English users of it themselves. There may be a question of a kind of a challenge there that Dubliners at the time felt and that Joyce was certainly conscious of and speaks to that. There are so many ways into this language complication. Here's Alwyn Fuere, actor and director of the Finnegan's Wake adaptation River Run. I grew up in a kind of bilingual 
limbo, I guess. My parents were from Brittany, France, but I was born in Ireland. As you know, there's always been you know, linguistic issues, both in Brittany, uh, which has its own language, totally different to French, which was suppressed very similarly to the Irish language was suppressed in Ireland by the British. I guess I've always existed in this kind of linguistic limbo where I felt the primary accepted languages didn't really create the landscape for the human experience, I suppose. I was always fascinated by Finnegan's Wake because it subverted the English language so much and it also used and cannibalized languages from all over the world. And the musicality and the subversive nature of it was what always attracted me. In Dublin social circumstances, Joyce found the basis for a lifetime and more of language play. His work does make you think back to the city, this sociable place on the River Liffey, full of meaning possibilities. You know, Dublin was his kind of map for just about everything he did, really, um, even though he didn't live in it for very long. Or, you know, There's nothing particularly significant about the River Liffey, but the Irish word for Liffey is Liffe, L-I-F-E, life. So there's that. It rises in the Wicklow Mountains and it, it journeys out to the ocean, or not even to the ocean, to the stagnant pool that is the Irish Sea, I always think. <laughs> but, um, but he just he just used it because, I, I think possibly because of the liffa, the life aspect, and also um, almost every river in the world is referenced in the book. The river of life. For all the cosmic import of the wake, it's also a step back from blank modern uniformity and into local life. Here's the novelist Joshua Cohen. Joyce saw modernity, you know, the loneliness, the, the ennui, the anime, whatever you want to call it, that it really brought about in people. And I think that there was a fundamental return in his mind that was necessary to be made to the storying tradition, you know, which of course is a very Irish tradition. It's a very Irish tradition, and it also reminds me, a lot of his sentence level or word level stuff reminds me of like Adam Sandler's Shabadoo like sound effects, it, oh, it is sure. getting, which Sandler connects to like his grandmother, right? It's clearly about like family language that is like spoken just for sheer joy. And like in Adam Sandler's songs, in Finnegan's Wake, the private familial kind of language isn't just about speaking. Here's Joseph Nugent. There is, of course, I mean, the very well-known fact that Joyce himself had a great tenor voice and that he won the, what, the third prize in the 1902, if I think, if I'm correct, 1902, Fesh Kjol here in Dublin, that he loved music. He loved music, music of various types, popular music. The music of the musical was as exciting, as, as, as mellifluous, as gorgeous to him as the grandest of classical music. So I think that it infused itself simply in the shape of his sentences. The unit of absolute beauty in Joyce, to me, is the sentence. And we know how hard he worked upon his sentences. We know the well-known story out there about an evening when his friend came over for drinks, of course, and asked him how he had got on that day. And he said, not very well. I spent the whole day working on a single sentence. May have been two sentences. I said, uh, Frank Budgeon, he said, so what, looking for the exact words, the much just, said he. No, said Joyce, I had the exact words. I was trying to put them into the exact right order. So many of Joyce's sentences, I might argue almost every single sentence he wrote, is infused with music. Remember that Finnegan's Wake, when it has an apostrophe, is itself the name of a song. 
a song about dying and rising again. Here's Philip Kitcher. In the very first chapter, the very first part, we get Tim Finnegan, who falls from his ladder. His head, it was heavy, his heart, it did shake. And he falls off the ladder. And we get a, a wonderful mishmash of popular songs that are sung at Finnegan's Wake. Irish songs. Somewhat later, we get a picture of Dublin. It's as if we're revisiting Dublin for a moment. The citizens of this city sneeze out a likelihood. The lines are about Irish subservience to the British, the ways in which the city has been dominated, and these lives have been degraded and cheapened. They have to speak a language which is not their own. The word for Dublin is that Joyce uses at this point is, do you belong? And then he says, hush, caution, echo land, which of course announces the arrival of this figure, HCE. That's a tough one, but echo, E-C-H-O, has its intimation of, in reverse, H-C-E, E-C-H, H-C-E, something like that. It also points out something about subservient people. They must ask themselves, even though they're in their own country, do you belong? And they must proceed with caution and they must listen for echoes. It's a wonderful eerie portrait. I mean, there will be people perhaps for whom this wouldn't be a particularly resonant part of the book, but it seems to me that most of us have been in the position of feeling that our own interests are not listened to, that we can't speak clearly and articulately in our own voice, and that we are dominated by some things outside ourselves in which we have no say. Catherine O'Callaghan tells me about the necessity of Irishness for Finnegan's Wake. There were specialists who often weren't Irish or didn't have an Irish heritage or didn't have a background in Irish culture who were looking at this book and saw the Irish myths and folklore and history in it as strange and esoteric and not really part of this great experiment of combining world languages and world literature. And I would see it on the contrary as being central to the book. And I think, you know, this tendency that was there for many years to read Joyce as somebody who was an urban writer, who was anti-Ireland, who fled from Ireland and so wasn't part of the Irish Renaissance or the Irish literary revival. I think that that was a false reading. And I think that Joyce, in all of his works, of course, is coming back to Dublin but in Finnegan's Wake is really embracing all of Irish literature and the, the entire country. It's a book which is really concerned with the ecoscape, if you like, of Ireland, the environment of Ireland. It's all about connectivity. It's all about the interplay between the land and the people. The words seem to be connected to each other in all sorts of underground ways that we can uncover. Joyce was conscious of Ireland in a way that allows for, as I say, this sort of connectivity through time and through space. How does the book connect to Gaelic, to Irish language, in a way that makes the language especially understandable in so many different ways? Joyce 
is actually following in the wake, if you like, of the authors of the literary revival, like Yeats and Lady Gregory, these sort of central figures who became very conscious of the idea that in Ireland, a sort of Hiberno English was spoken and that the English that was spoken in Ireland contained lots of residue from the Irish language. Those residues actually created a sort of poetry within the English then that was spoken. There was this notion that if you even took Irish language and translated it, directly transliterated it into English, you'd already have a kind of poetry in the language and it would make for wonderful literature. So in Finnegan's Wake, I think Joyce is really conscious of that sense that languages are shadowed by other languages, sometimes lost languages or nearly lost languages. There are often silences in the text where you have a sense of things that never got written down and so are lost, but there's a little placeholder for that loss. And it's full of Irish words. I think Joyce, you know, he resisted Irish when he saw it as being set up against English. That's not really the way Joyce encounters languages. He wants to, you know, embrace as many languages as possible. But I think when it comes to Finnegan's Wake, the underlying sort of language to me is a sort of Hiberno-English. If you read it aloud, there's all sorts of humour which is based around the way in which people speak in Irish, in Ireland rather, even in English. All sorts of turns of phrases, odd ways of referring to things. It's a book of Irish myths and languages and meanings colliding, and we see this in the main figure of HCE. HCE is a sort of a man of the mountain. He's, he's partly this hill of Hoth. And he's partly a male figure, so reclined across the land as though he's a giant that has fallen into the land. And this recalls the fall of the great forests of Ireland, which even in Bardic tradition were seen as representing the fall of the old order, of the old Irish orders um, because of colonialism. So this fallen giant who is a sort of Finn, it's, it's also back to the old myths of the Fianna, a warrior tribe in Ireland, you know, in the first and second centuries and, and with Finn, the leader. And this is the fallen Finn. But the idea, of course, in Finnegan's wake is that Finn himself might be woken in some way and come back out of his burial site and rise again. And and Olivia Plurabelle is the female equivalent, and she is the river Liffey running out into Dublin Bay. She is connected with life and with a sort of circularity, the way that water functions, obviously with the river flowing into the, the sea and then the condensation up into the clouds. And the daughter Izzy is sometimes referred to as this little cloud, and she will begin the cycle again. And uh, then we have these warring twins, Shem and Sean, who cross over into each other at various points. They're almost two parts of the father, maybe two versions of him. More closer to home, they seem to be in some way connected with Joyce himself as Jim, Shem the penman who writes, and then as Sean, which is sometimes connected with his brother Stanislaus, or sometimes connected with the singer John McCormack. This notion being there that Joyce could have been a singer, that this alternative path he didn't take was to become a great singer like Count John McCormack. Uh, Shem and Sean, therefore, are these two parts of our lives where there's one life we live and one we could have lived if we'd taken another path. These are all sort of archetypes that Joyce is thinking about. But as always with Joyce, with the you know this idea that 
in the particulars, the universal, so that he can build his archetypes out of characters he knew himself or out of himself. The two twins also become St. Patrick and this arch druid character. At the end of the book, there's a quite climactic scene between the two of them, at least as much as there is ever in the wake, between these two characters who are battling out two different ways of thinking about how we should live. And it seems to represent this moment when St. Patrick came to Ireland in 432. And Patrick represents the coming of Christianity and also the coming of literacy to Ireland. But he has to battle it out with the existing pagan culture. Now, St. Patrick technically shouldn't meet any members of the Fianna, but the idea is that they lived for centuries and so they met St. Patrick. So this idea that you can maintain a belief in the old Irish pagan ways and also believe in Christianity is something the wake explores. And I think in this scene, I think it takes place perhaps on Cropatrick, which is the holy mountain in Mayo on the West Coast. And it's where Patrick himself went for his 40 days and nights of purgatory. And the legend is that Patrick threw all of the snakes of Ireland into Clue Bay, and that's why there are no snakes anymore. Of course, that's often seen as him throwing the pagan culture out as well. But Joyce has these moments on Cropatrick. It's even there on the first page of the book where he considers this as the prime or primal scene of the clashing of two civilizations. And then he brings in the clashing of many, many other civilizations to create a kind of pattern, a sort of ebb and flow of history. And so we have this extremely Irish book echoing throughout the universe. Here's Joseph Nugent, the leader of the Zoom in the Wake reading group. I, I guess one point to be made is that while the English for whatever reason, seemed wary of Joyce. Virginia Woolf herself, of course, had some contemptible things to say about him and thought of him as being contemptible. Um, the, the, the great English universities always seemed to like to keep a small distance between themselves, sometimes a rather large distance between themselves and James Joyce. And the Irish themselves, it should be said, actually also maintain some distance from James Joyce for their own reasons. That America was the place in which, at least in terms of the academy, that Joyce was taken to heart and loved. America became the great centre of James Joyce studies. Why did Joyce speak specifically to Americans? I'm not sure, and, and I wouldn't dare say that he does. On a personal level, it's a, it's a great delight to me to be able, through Zoom in the Wake, to find Irish Americans people of first and second and third generations delving into Finnegan's Wake, not for the literature, not simply for the music, but for the discovery of what Ireland at the time was like, indeed. You could certainly say that the, the, the size of the Irish diaspora in America gives us a willing audience for Finnegan's Wake. It's only when they parachute in that they discover just how much of Ireland is in there. Joyce, as I said, spent his life writing about nothing except Dublin. This is a book about Dublin. This is a book intensely about Ireland. It may have universal appeal and Joyce absolutely wanted it to have universal appeal and wished to believe that anybody and everybody throughout the world could pick it up and read it. But for Irish Americans, there's probably going to be a special pleasure, special discoveries to be made there, discoveries of their own past and their own exile, the exile of their parents, as Joyce writing from his own exile is describing the Dublin that he, he loved. Loved and hated, of course, loved and hated. 
Thank you for listening to Finnegan and Friends. Guests in this series are the novelist Joshua Cohen, author of Wits and Moving Kings, the actor and director Alwyn Fuere, who you can see in movies like Mandy, and whose stage adaptation of The Wake is called River Run, Catherine O'Callaghan, Joycean at UMass Amherst, Joseph Nugent, Joycean at Boston College, and impresario behind Zoom in the Wake, which you can watch over on YouTube, Philip Kitcher, emeritus at Columbia University, whose book on The Wake is Joyce's Kaleidoscope, Dr. Jade Wu, a sleep specialist at Duke, and Elok Jha, science journalist with The Economist, and author of The Water Book, which in this case is not a euphemism for Finnegan's Wake. I'm Adam Coleman, and thanks again.